0: new all-time highs in the stock market thanks to the Magnificent Seven, problems in China and Europe, what's happening with commercial real estate, and of course, we'll close with what's going on in Bitcoin ETFs. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Layer. I'm Nick Batia. Today, I have a packed show with lots of charts. Let's get right into it. All right, I want to start with the CEO of Google, Satya Nadella. Let's hear what he had to say about real economic growth around the world. Right now, as we speak, uh, inflation adjusted, uh, there is no economic growth in the world, I would say. Um, and that's a pretty disappointing state. In fact, the developed world may have negative economic growth. And so, um, in a world like that, we may need a new input. And that's why I'm very optimistic about AI being that general purpose technology that drives economic growth. Now, I find it very interesting that he's characterizing the growth in the developed world as negative on an inflation adjusted basis. And if we actually strip away these magnificent seven companies, these large technology players in the United States, The statistics would be much, much worse. Now, that is not to say that the U.S. economy is weak because these seven tech names are taking up all the equity performance and the growth. It's not the case. These companies hire people in the United States, they bring profits to the U.S., and they continue to drive growth and innovation in this country and abroad. So we're not singling out these seven companies as being bad for the economy, rather that if you take away these seven companies, the economy, broadly speaking, is not doing that well. And we get this directly from the CEO of Google. The Bitcoin layer is proud to be sponsored by River. Go check them out today at river.com slash TBL for a special offer of up to $100 worth of Bitcoin for free when you go sign up. Now, River is a Bitcoin only exchange. That means there's no confusion when you go there. They allow you to deposit and withdraw via Lightning Network. They have a zero fee recurring purchase order feature. And what we love the most about River is not only do they encourage you to get self-custody, but they're there to help educate you on self-custody and everything there is to know about Bitcoin. Go check them out today, river.com TBL. All right, let's talk about the Magnificent Seven and these new all-time highs in the stock market. We have the S&P 500 reaching 5,000 today. Today is Wednesday, February the 7th. And... What we see here is that the performance over the last 12 months of the S&P 500 is up about 20%. We see that in orange here. But in purple, without the Magnificent 7, it would only be up 8%. Now, to refresh your memory here, these seven companies are Alphabet, Google, Amazon, Apple, Meta, which is Facebook, of course, Microsoft, Chipmaker, NVIDIA, and Tesla and among these seven companies we are seeing the bulk of the performance in the stock market look at the performance for the last four years so what we have included here is this dip at the beginning uh, of course at the beginning of 2020 and the performance since then the stock market is up 48 percent but it would only be up 12 percent over the last four years so very anemic returns if it wasn't for these seven companies. So let's remember that even though these seven companies are driving the stock market forward, it does leave a lot of companies that are not seeing the same type of performance. There's also the issue of positioning. There might be a lot of positions in these seven names that are leveraged and outsized, and it does expose those players to to uh, draw down when there is some selling present. So we will keep our eye on this dynamic of the Magnificent Seven and continue to cover it. Thanks to you guys for pointing it out to us and making sure that we are providing the best analysis that we can across asset classes. Let's get into the next story here. We are going to shift our focus to China. The Chinese stock market has been seeing an immense decline in the last several months, including the last couple weeks here, we have over a $7 trillion drawdown in the size of the Chinese stock market. And we see this headline here from Bloomberg, the China sell-off leads to a record $38 trillion gap with U.S. stocks. And this includes the sum of the Hong Kong and the Shanghai stock markets. And what we're seeing here is that there's just an enormous gap that's widening between the size of the U.S. uh, based off of what's going on with these mega cap technology names, the Magnificent Seven, and of course in China with a continued decline in stock prices. Now, I want to focus here on what the response is going to be from China. So, of course... What we see here from the financial media in the West is looking for the bailout. What is the central planning of China going to do in response to these stock market crashes? So what we are ending up seeing is that they are introducing measures. Some of those measures are selling bans, which you know is funny because you can't prevent in a free market somebody from selling an asset. But we do see that China and Europe puts in these selling bands when markets get volatile. It's, it's funny to observe, but not funny from a financial market perspective because what it means is that there is no stopping the decline in prices unless you actually just switch the market off. And that's what we see in these Bloomberg headlines that the hedge funds are literally switched off from being able to trade and sell stocks right now. So there are measures that are being put forth by the government to halt the decline in stocks, but that's just a sell ban isn't going to cut it here. The market really wants and needs stimulus, monetary or and or fiscal from the Chinese government here, and I'm not sure they're going to get it. And so the reason I'm not so sure they're going to get it is thanks to Marco Papic, geopolitical researcher, and I want to read here from his latest report on China. Now, in this report, he talks about a leaked document 47, which suggests that Beijing has remained fixated on imposing austerity on local governments, Effectively ruling out a forceful fiscal expansion to reflate the economy. Also, he says that unlike in the US, stock market performance has very little influence over Beijing's macro policy making. And this is the key here to focus on. Property is a big part of Chinese wealth and what chinese consumers and investors and families do with their wealth so the property sector definitely will have the government over there more quick to respond but this point about the national government the ccp wanting to impose austerity on local governments and therefore ruling out a large fiscal response On a nationwide basis, we think that that is very important here when we're thinking about China. A Chinese bailout uh, of multi-trillions doesn't seem like it is in the cards right now. And that might have a large deflationary impulse on the world and the global economy. So we will continue to watch for that. We also, as you know, watch the Chinese one and see if there's anything going on there right now. The one has is relatively strong where to where it was in the past couple years. We saw the one weaken significantly last year as the dollar was strengthening as rates were uh, getting up there. But we will continue to watch that and see if China really is going to have a deflationary impulse on the world right now, especially with what we're seeing in the U.S. stock market. There's not a lot of that going on. Now, shifting gear back to the U.S. and commercial real estate, we are seeing troubles in the banking sector. This is This is a red flag. This is when the warning signals start to go off in my own personal framework here when you start to see trouble in banks. It means that the rescue is not far behind. We know the lender of last resort concept that the Fed employs, we know that the system cannot survive without monetary stimulus. And so that theory will be tested once again, we believe in 2024. It was tested in 2023. What did we get? We got the FDIC basically increased their insurance amount to infinity from 250000 We saw that with Silicon Valley Bank. We also saw the BTFP, an emergency lending and funding facility for banks and their underwater treasury positions the next leg in this banking meltdown will be in credit impairment now we've talked about this a couple times we're going to emphasize it once again the problem last year in part was duration mismanagement it was buying too many long-term treasuries before they went up in yield and down in price That's what the BTFP was for. Now you are going to see banks take write downs on their assets, and the assets are not going to be treasuries, and the price decline is not going to be because of an increase in market yields. It's going to be on their loan book. Remember that banks, on their asset side of the balance sheet, they have loans. Why? Because these are future cash flows due to them, so they're assets for them. If the future cash flows are declining in present value, the write-downs will be around the corner. And why would you expect a decline in those future cash flows? Because of defaults, defaults, defaults. That is what the fear is in commercial real estate, in office space, and that is what the fear is in banks. So when you see New York New York Community Bank go down by 60% in one month, have to sell off assets and kick up really dust of this regional banking crisis once again, draw down the entire regional banking sector along with it, what you are seeing this time is credit impairment. We see that now going on in Germany. Why? Because European banks, specifically German banks, have exposure to commercial real estate in the U.S. So this headline from Bloomberg, it's the top story of the day, U.S. commercial real estate contagion is now moving to Europe. This is what we worry about when it comes to the Fed being too restrictive right now. And when we think about the path of policy rates being lower and every Fed member emphasizing it, this is what they are talking about. Why would you be cutting rates with GDP at 3 plus percent and unemployment at 3.5%? To three and three-quarter percent because a banking crisis might be around the corner that's why and they need to get out in front of it they are going to be too late that is our judgment here and we see problems starting in europe so let's read a little bit into this article and see what's going on the troubles in the u.s property market commercial property market which have already hit banks in new york and japan moved to europe this week elevating fears about broader contagion the latest victim saw its bonds slump on concern about its exposure to the sector it's warning about persistent weakness of the real estate markets and described the current current turmoil as the greatest real estate crisis since 2008 so if we are seeing breakdowns in Germany based off of what's happening in the U.S. office space, we can we can basically conclude here that there is going to be a global banking problem. We can't go come out and outright say that there is going to be a crisis because that would be a prediction that's outside of our wheelhouse. But starting to see these write-downs and starting to see the word contagion pop up on the front page of Bloomberg is worrying. Now, let's look at this chart provided to us from Bloomberg. Okay, continuing with the story. In its results last week, Deutsche Bank recorded provisions for losses in U.S. commercial real estate that were more than four times bigger than a year earlier. It warned that refinancing poses the greatest risk to the struggling sector as asset values suffer. What is the whole chain of events? A decline in rents because an increase in vacancies. A decline in rents means a decline in the health of the loans extended to office space property owners. Those loans are going to start to default and when those loans start to default, you need to make provisions at the bank level for those losses. Now, in this next chart, we are looking at AT1s. These are additional tier one fixed income facilities. Basically, these facilities are like corporate bonds to banks in Europe. And what we see the price of these AT1s are the prices here are collapsing in some of the banks over there in Europe. And What this means is that the bank assets themselves are underperforming. The market is sniffing it out and selling out of the claims on these assets. And so what we're seeing right now is a decline in fixed income credit products. And that is not something that we've been witnessing here in the last several months And it is something that is cause for concern. So we'll be continuing to watch that. Now let's talk about the delinquencies themselves and the delinquency statistics. Now I have the absolutely latest numbers for you guys. These numbers updated yesterday from the New York Fed. And what we see is that new delinquent balances across mortgages, autos, and credit cards are all on the March higher continue to march higher the pace of the increase continues to be constant right we always look at the slope as well as the change in the slope the second derivative is very important here as we try to get trends we're looking at uh, for example the u.s real estate uh, commercial sorry the residential real estate market specifically the k-shiller index and what we saw is that the pace of, int- of home prices, that pace of increase was slowing, bottomed, and now is picking back up again. So it shows us that the U.S. residential housing market is doing okay. And rate of change helps us with that. But here on delinquencies, rate of change is telling us that there is a problem in the U.S. consumer. Now, this isn't necessarily conflating with what we are seeing across other sentiment uh, indicators. We see other sentiment indicators from the consumer being okay, but uh, this metric is one that is not a survey it is a raw data point it means that loans are starting to go bad and if loans are starting to go bad there is a problem in banking around the corner especially because we know that banks are very leveraged and so if if only 10% of their loans default then the whole business might have to shutter And we are going to be watching banking a lot. We're going to do our best to bring on banking experts at the Bitcoin layer here for you guys to try to understand what is happening around the world of banking and asset write-downs. I have a very interesting chart for you guys, switching gears a little bit to the introduction of volatility that we see with quantitative tightening. This is the QT program in which the Fed Is running down the size of its balance sheet. And it this is a very interesting chart that I put together this week for you guys. Let me walk you through each each number here. In black, at about $12 trillion, we have the size of the mortgage market. Okay, so this is the number, this is the total of mortgage backed securities that are out there. About $12 trillion. Okay, and other mortgage pools and and those types of assets here, twelve trillion. In orange down at the bottom, what I have for you is the Soma portfolio. That is what the Fed owns as its security holdings. Soma stands for System Open Market Account. So it's the account of the Fed, the New York Fed's trading desk. The number of MBS that the Fed owns right now is about 2.4 trillion. In green, I have the percentage of the orange line divided by the black line. So basically, in green at 20.8%, this is the amount of outstanding mortgages owned by the SOMA portfolio and the Fed. So, and that is axis is on the left side for you guys so you can see and all the nominal trillions are on the right side in purple then what i have for you is the difference between the black and the orange line so the green line is the percentage the purple line then is the difference so it's basically how many mortgages are out there are not owned by the fed and that is about 9.4 trillion And so when we talk about the introduction of volatility to the broader market via the QT channel, it's nuanced. But basically, when the Fed owns mortgage-backed securities, it is removing volatility from the market because when the private market owns mortgage-backed securities, it is selling an option and that option that it is sold is the option to refinance from the for the for the borrower so the borrower always has the option to refinance and that option has been sold by the mortgage backed security holder and so when the fed buys mortgage backed securities it's removing volatility from the system when it forces the private hands to buy mortgage backed securities when it's purchasing less or it has less of its mortgage-backed securities in its stock, it's forcing the private hands to absorb volatility because they're the ones selling it to the home borrowers. And so that is a nuanced, it's a very niche way to look at what the Fed is doing with QT. But this purple line shows us that the number of mortgages that has to hit private hands Is rising now to nine and a half trillion. And the percentage of all outstanding mortgages owned by the Fed is declining from 25% to 20% and will probably continue to decline. Now, what happened to the green line heading into 20 at the end of 2019? It was going, it was falling rapidly to 15% and then had to be renewed. So when the Fed did QE. During 2020, when it did its QE infinity program, why did it choose to buy mortgage-backed securities this time again, as well as treasuries, when mortgage-backed securities weren't really near the crisis as they were in 2007, 8, and 9? Why did they do this? It's because of the removal of volatility. And so this is the introduction of volatility. When the purple line increases and the green line decreases... This is the introduction of volatility to the private hands. So we are, we will continue to watch this as well when we are starting to monitor what the Fed is going to do with its balance sheet. And remember, based on the FOMC statement and Jerome Powell's press conference from January 31st, we know that they were not planning on ending QT in March. They are all going to bring their little chart packs and Slide decks to the meeting to discuss what to do. So, any pause or slowdown in QT is not coming in March, and that puts the private hands once again on the spot to absorb volatility. We'll continue to watch that. Shifting gears now to rates and the dollar. Rates have been showing a little bit of weakness in that yields have been increasing to start the year. We've talked about that largely a seasonal effect here but also the fed walking back it's any expectation of a rate cut in march it needed to do that we still feel the first cut is coming in june and that's also another reminder for you guys to go subscribe to our research letter at the BitcoinLayer.com subscribe it's free for you guys every single weekend and what we are doing there is not trying to cover every little move in rates and the news. We're trying to give you the zoomed out uh, objective, as objective as possible overview of what is happening in rates and what we, believe, what we believe the Fed is gonna do. So of course, providing our opinion to you. And what we called for from around October to December is that the first cuts will be with us in June. We're sticking with that. So what we see here on this chart is the Treasury yield, the ten-year Treasury yield, on top, and the bottom pane is the correlation of Treasury yields with the dollar index. With this number, basically near one, what that means is that as yields increase, the dollar gets stronger, and we see that be, we see that the case around the world oftentimes with rates and currencies as higher yields attract the marginal dollar to that currency. So it's an interest rate arbitrage phenomenon that drives this correlation higher. And so when yields are increasing, the dollar is getting stronger and vice versa. So with a little bit of a pop in yield, we are seeing a little bit of a pop in the dollar, but reminding ourselves that the two are not the same thing and that they can decouple from time to time. We mention this because when looking at the dollar now going to the next chart when looking at the dollar and this is now a 25 year chart that we have here up on the screen we see the dollar in this secular bull trend and something that can become a very tight financial condition to the rest of the world now With our view that yields are fairly priced here in the low fours and are probably heading into the three-handle over the next year, it doesn't mean for us that yields will be the driver of a stronger dollar. And therefore, we can't necessarily forecast or predict a stronger dollar because it doesn't match with what we're seeing on the previous chart which is a high correlation of yields in the dollar, and our view that yields are not going to march higher. We don't see yields going to 5%. We don't see front-end yields returning to 5%, as over 1% of cuts will become realized over the next several months. We don't see 10-year or 30-year yields getting back to 5% on any dramatic re-steepening of the curve, on some renewed growth and inflation expectations we don't see any either of those two things happening this year so therefore we can't necessarily see higher yields driving a stronger dollar but what could drive a stronger dollar a flight to safety so in a flight to safety you might see investors leave their currencies by the dollar and by u.s treasuries driving the dollar higher and treasury yields lower as prices go up so that could be what happens in a flight to safety and if the dollar is going up so again we're not we're not actually trying to make any forecasts or predictions here on the dollar what we believe is that yields are not going higher so how will that impact the dollar it's yet to be seen but we do want to keep in mind this strong correlation of yields and the dollar right now Finishing quickly on rates, and then we will go to Bitcoin to close it out here. On rates, the renewed path or the refreshed path of policy rates still has us at about 1% of cuts by the fall. But now that 50 basis point of cut has moved out of May into June and even further out into the year. So first cut still looking good by the middle of the year, but how much the market has tapered some of that expectation And we think that this was probably a wise thing for the market to do as the Fed has clearly signaled that no cut is coming in March and we don't really know if anything is coming in May either. We'll have to watch. March will be a very interesting FOMC meeting. You know we will be covering that live for you guys, of course. Okay, last topic of the day is Bitcoin and we will talk about Bitcoin ETFs and Bitcoin price. So quickly on ETFs. We talked about some of the major milestones. I want to show you another chart here. These are the year-to-date flows of all the publicly traded United States ETFs. So we see some of these large equity and fixed income ETFs uh, at the top of the list, right? At number nine, for example, you have LQD, this is the corporate bond ETF with a long duration. At number 10, you have QQQ. This is the NASDAQ 100. And you can see, of course, here that there are $244 billion in assets at QQQ. And it's some of the Vanguard equity funds, $300 and $400 billion, right? That's what you see there uh, in the top five. But look at number five and number eight in terms of the year-to-date inflows into ETFs, and you see BlackRock and Fidelity at number five and number eight of all ETF inflows for the year. Unbelievable statistic here as basically if you sum these two, you are looking at the third highest net flows of any ETF in the United States of America. It's it's really impressive. And I know that there have been a lot of GBTC selling and withdrawals to make the net inflow number look muted. But that leads me to my next slide here. And thanks to Eric Balchunas of Bloomberg for providing absolutely stellar coverage here of Bitcoin ETFs. Go check out his feed and check out the uh, episode that we did with him where he told us that ETFs were essentially a done deal last year. We're going to have Eric on again. We're going to do our best to bring him back on and refresh the scene here on Bitcoin ETFs. Now, this next chart is a screen in Bloomberg that we basically have that allows us to see who owns these ETFs across the market. And what we see here is that now you are starting to see file dates, okay? On the right side of your screen here, you see that on January 31st and on February 6th, we got these filings. One at a time, investment managers are going to be disclosing stakes in these ETFs. And this is the FOMO that we have been expecting for many, many years. Remember that I personally have been writing about Bitcoin ETFs and what it can do for the asset class since 2018. So these were a long time coming. And the FOMO portion of this story is just about to start. So yes, we have a little dabble of these two funds at a few basis points each in their portfolios. That's not really what's important. What's important here is that the filings have begun. And the FOMO will begin. Every asset manager that starts to file a position in Bitcoin ETFs will snowball into more and more financial advisors, wealth managers, and asset managers capitulating and owning Bitcoin. Right before recording, I saw that Fidelity in their all-weather conservative ETF has now put a 1% allocation to its own Bitcoin ETF. This is an ETF that keeps 60% in investment-grade bonds. So 1% of Fidelity's all-weather fund is now in Bitcoin. These are enormous developments for the institutional adoption of Bitcoin. I understand it hasn't driven the price higher in the last few months, but what I can promise you here is that the demand will overwhelm the supply On a net basis, over the next year to two years here for Bitcoin, it will drive a higher price. We are going to be here for the entire thing. I want to close with a quick look at the Bitcoin chart here, give you guys a little bit of my own technical analysis price study. Now, you guys know I like to keep it simple on the charts. I don't like to have a lot of metrics, and that allows me to just ask myself, what are the buyers and sellers doing here? What is the behavior? We are in an uptrend, okay? That is the larger, that is the the, uh, sharper sloping blue line that you have on the screen, okay? We are in an uptrend that has been in effect since the end of 2022 and the FTX blowout. We have extended above that trend line quite significantly. Support would be right now in the low 30s to the mid 30s. On Bitcoin, that's that orange circle that you see here, but a really wonderful bounce off of 38,000 during the route of the initial GBTC selling that we saw post approval in January. Three consecutive nice green weekly candles here as Bitcoin regaining its trend. But what you basically have here is Bitcoin in a consolidation between about 38,000 and 50,000. That will be the governing price action for us going forward. A break below 38 does expose Bitcoin. We expect it to continue this consolidation in this range. And a breakout above the ETF news at that moment, the first moment that those ETFs went live, we saw a spike up to about 49,000. A crack above 49,000 is going to open up the door back up to 69,000, 70,000, the all time high. So, how long might it take for Bitcoin to eclipse that 49,000? Might take weeks, might take months. We're not there to predict that. We're just here to do some price study and give you the governing levels on buyers and sellers and where we see the market. Thank you guys once again for sticking with us at The Bitcoin Layer. Please subscribe across every platform at The Bitcoin Layer to all of our written content, thebitcoinlayer.com slash subscribe. And of course all of our media content as well we'll catch you guys next time the bitcoin layer is proud to be sponsored by river go check them out today at river.com tbl for a special offer of up to 100 worth of bitcoin for free when you go sign up now the reason that we love river is that they are a bitcoin only exchange there's no confusion when you go there and what you're buying but really importantly about River is that they do not use a third-party custodian. They have their own multi-signature solution. That means that when you buy Bitcoin on River, that Bitcoin is not being stored by another party. River is storing it in their own multi-signature way, and they encourage you to get your Bitcoin into your own self-custody and help with educational resources on that front. Go check them out today, river.com TBL.